Well, welcome everyone to Foothills Christian Church. If you're visiting with us for the first time, maybe you came to VBS and you've come back, we're so glad that you were here. We uh, want to welcome everybody. Hope they feel comfortable. If you moved from out of state this summer and you've uh, uh, joined us today on campus, we are really glad that you're here. If you're watching for the first time because you're thinking of moving to Idaho, well, this is the promised land, so we're glad that you are watching. The great thing about our church is if you want to come, you don't have to change your license plate before you will feel welcome here. So uh, if you're a Boisean, that is an inside joke. Now, as a church, we're here to help you navigate life. And it's the decisions that you make that are critical. And you know what drives your decisions more than anything else? It's what you believe. Not what you think you believe, but what you really, truly believe in your heart. So this summer, what we're talking about to help people navigate life is the parables of Jesus, the stories that he told that describe the kingdom of God and challenge what we truly and actually believe about ourselves and about the world in which we live. Last week we did the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Now we're going to go back to Luke chapter 15. We're going to back up a little bit and we're going to talk about the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. So I'd like to just get us all kicked off and read from Luke chapter 15 verses 3 and following these two parables. Now when Jesus told them, now Jesus told them this parable, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who re. Now, uh, here you see Jesus telling a story about a lost sheep, and that kind of metaphor is applying to us uh, or to people. There's a lost coin, and that applies to us as well. The prodigal son is about some of us who may have been prodigals or lost. I personally like being uh, kind of likened unto a lost coin than a sheep. Here's why.
Jesus was being kind and sweet when he referred to people as sheep, right? Or do you think that there might have been a minor... Yeah, sheep are not known to be the smartest animal <laughs> in the barn, okay? And you can see why. Now, Jesus told these parables because he was at a very specific gathering. If you read verse 1 and 2, it says he was at a gathering with scribes and Pharisees, okay? These were people who were very religious. They, they had a plan, a goal. They had guidelines, code of honor. They were following it. The Pharisees were kind of like modern-day professors a little bit who were teaching about, uh, they were teachers about the law and the covenant. The scribes were the actual uh, lawyer type that would write out all the contracts uh, for land deeds, for marriages, for uh, agreements and contracts and loans. They would write all that stuff out. And so that's what scribes and Pharisees did. They were very into the law. They're very into the covenant in the Old Testament where God says, if you endeavor to follow this and stick with it and you abide by it, then I'll do my part and I will be your provider and protector and you will live in a material kingdom. And so Jesus was at a gathering. And what's interesting is at this gathering were not only these types of people, but also tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors were considered people who had committed treason in the eyes of the scribes and Pharisees because what they were doing is they worked for the Romans and they were actually gathering taxes from the Jewish people to pay to the Romans. The, the most famous of them all is Zacchaeus in the New Testament. What's interesting is the uh, sinners were basically inclusive of people. And when you read the, the, the story of the prodigal son, which is also one of these parables in Luke 15, Jesus tells three of them together, is that you get this idea that they were people that were prostitutes and, and people who were really had not just said, oh, I'm not good enough to be religious. They had rejected it completely and walked in another direction. But what's so strange, they're all together as one. And the, and the scribes and Pharisees started to grumble against Jesus and say, Jesus, you know, you're obviously not a religious person. You're obviously not a person who represents God because you hang out with these people who have rejected and turned their back on him. And this is how Jesus answers their complaint. He tells three parables. Last week, we talked about the prodigal son, which is the last one. And then he tells the lost sheep, and he tells the one of the lost coin. So what does these parables have to teach us today? What biblical principles can we find that applied then that are also applicable for you and I today as we're trying to navigate life? And here's a couple of the principles that I think beyond a shadow of a doubt uh, Jesus is communicating. And he does it in all three parables and particularly these first two. And that is, number one, God views people worth saving. He views people as worth redeeming. He believes that people have value. And when you save something or find something, it brings joy. Now, what's interesting is you know what the actual point of each parable is, right? The parable of the lost sheep, at the very end it says, he finds the sheep, and then what does he do? He calls all of his friends and neighbors, and they celebrate 
they have joy. The lost coin, she finds it, calls all of her friends and neighbors, and what do they do? They celebrate. When the prodigal son comes home, what do they have when he comes back? A party. So there's a celebration, joy. All three parables are about joy. And it's interesting that the notion of joy is tied directly to finding something, but just not anything. You know, when you lose something without value, you know, mid-year, you don't really care. And then maybe you're doing a garage sale or you're cleaning out your garage or you're moving or something. And this thing that you lost all those years ago pops up. You go, oh, that's where that fell in behind the refrigerator or fell behind the dresser or something. I didn't know that, but you didn't pull the dresser out to look for it. But when you lose something of value, then, boy, you really go after it, don't you? You know, I, I have a son who is about ready to launch, and he has a pair of iPod or AirPod Pros. Let me get this straight. They're the kind that go in the ears, you know, and he, he loves these things, you know. And so what happened is he lost them. Yeah, he lost them. So the Peak household then mobilized to try to help find these things. So, well, I was sitting on the couch. So we have this gigantic couch. It's the size of Texas, you know. It's a big sectional and kind of a thing. So we take that thing apart. We pull the cushions off, but that's not enough. You have to stick your hands down in there, you know, and you're like, you find things like jelly beans from 1972. Well, the couch isn't that old, but, but you know, it's in there. It's like, oh, that's just gross, you know, stuff. So you throw all back and go, so well, where were you last? Well, I knew I had them then. I knew I had them there. And we said, well, have you looked in your room? I tore my room apart. And I, he goes, you wouldn't recognize it. I'm like, okay, when your room's clean or torn apart, it all looks the same to me, you know? And so... So, well, another week goes by and he doesn't, he can't, he doesn't find him. And he looks in his car and he looks here, he looks at work, he looks at all these different places, he can't find him. And so I'm asking, do you find him yet? No, do you find him yet? And they go, well, are you really looking? Yes, dad, I'm really looking, I'm really searching hard. And I'm thinking, okay, I understand search and rescue. I'm not sure you do, right? So I get to the point after about three and a half weeks go by and he says, I know they're in our house somewhere because before the batteries ran out on them, you know, my phone tells me they're here somewhere. And so I go, okay, the last frontier that has not been properly searched is your bedroom, right? So we go into his bedroom. And the interesting thing is that there's a philosophical difference about clothing in, in, between my son and I. You see, I am kind of old school, Right? And that is, is that clean clothes are either put in a dresser or hung on a curtain in the closet. His philosophy is that he has a pile of dirty clothes on the floor. Then he has a pile of semi-dirty clothes. Now, what does that mean? That means that they're not what you're going to have as first choice. But if a fashion incident occurs, you can go to that pile and still wear it in good conscience, okay? And then you have a pot, another pile on the floor called clean clothes. Now, when I go in, I can't tell the difference because it all smells the same to me, <laughs> right? So what happens is, I'm going to say, okay, son, 
if we're going to search and we're going to find this, you got to do real search and rescue, okay? You got to set up a grid and you've got to go grid by grid by grid and you got to search all the way to the bottom and all the way to the top before you go to the next grid or you'll never find anything. You can't know for sure that you've searched that one grid and you can say with absolute confidence it's not there. So, I go, okay, I'm finally going to help you. It took three and a half weeks, you know, but I finally got to that point. And here's the reason why. is because I knew if I go up there, it's going to take a long day to search because of all of the stuff up there. And so we get up there, and I'm thinking, okay, you know your dad loves you because I'm at the age now where if I'm going to get on my hands and knees and search for something, you know, I have a plan on how to get down, and I have to have a plan on how to get up, you know? Do I get an amen to that, right? So some of you know what I'm talking about. You got to have a plan. I'm not into jujitsu where I can do a handstand and flip up and, it, you know, I quit doing that nine months ago, okay? So, no. <laughs> so what happened is, we get down, I'm down on my hands and knees, and I said, we're going to start in the closet because there's no clothes or anything in the closet. So let's, let's get the low-hanging fruit first, right? So I get over there, and I get down on my hands and knees, and the first thing that I grab is a pair of gym shorts, right? So I grab these gym so- shorts, and I pick them up. The gym shorts that have been laying in sight of him for the last three and a half weeks and my hand grabs on those gym shorts and guess what I feel in the gym shorts something really hard I stick my hand in there and guess what I find his airpods right his airpod pros and so what happens I said look at this, this is awesome you know and after he helps me get up um you know the celebration ensued you know and all the silliness and all the teasing and all the stuff from before, all the way. We were so happy. He was fired up, you know, best dad ever. You know, we're high five. We're having a great time. You see, when you lose something of value, you get upset. And when you find something of value that was lost, you experience joy. You know what is interesting about that experience? It doesn't matter what you believe, what your religion is, what language you speak, how much money you've got. It's exactly the same for every human being. You can be an atheist. You don't believe in God. You don't believe in free will or anything. It's all determined. We're in a scientific material world. And you can say to yourself, but if you lose something that you have value for, and then you find it, guess what? You celebrate. You have joy. So Jesus is talking about something that every single human being experiences, right? Here's something that is very important to understand, is that when you lose something of value, you're upset. When you find it, you experience joy. And people who follow Jesus, people who are Christians, believe something that is unlike any other philosophy, political ideology, religion, worldview, or belief system out there. And you know what that is? Is that our value that you and I have is given to us. It is ascribed to us by God. It is not something that we create. So when you live in the kingdom of God, your value is discovered. 
You don't make it or create it. Every other belief system, every other religion requires you to earn or create your own value. In Islam, you're required to follow all six pillars of the faith. You're required to pray a certain amount of days, uh, uh, times a day. You're, you're required to fast at certain times of the year. You're required to wear certain clothes. You're supposed to read the Quran. You must learn Arabic to read it in its original language. You have to do all of these things in order to have value as a follower in Islam. And the whole meaning of the word in Islam and Muslim is to submit. That's what it means. And so you're required to do that. And then even at the end, most Muslim scholars say there's no guarantee that you'll go to paradise or heaven. There's no assurance of salvation. So you can work, do your best, but Allah is still capricious, meaning he's arbitrary. He's not required to do anything in your behalf. So you have to work for your own value. In Hinduism, you have to follow what is commonly known the path of devotion. You find a God that you could devote yourself to. You try to emulate what that God cares about so that that God will pay attention to you so that when you're recreated, you will come back higher up in the caste system. Okay. So you have to earn your value. Buddhism, paganism, Scientific materialism, atheism, secular humanism, political ideologies all require you to earn your value or to create your value. And that's why Christianity is so radical and so different because you're ascribed value by God. That sheep was ascribed value by the shepherd regardless of what it did, how smart it was, or whether it was found or Lost. And that principle alone is critical for people who want to know themselves. It's critical for people who want to understand why they do the things that they do. It's critical for people who want to ask the question, why am I not truly filled with joy? Why am I not at peace? Why do I strive for more? Why do I want more? Why am I unhappy with some of the relationships and the people in my life? Why can't I do better in this? Why do I lack motivation in my job? Why is it that you know I don't live up to my own standards? If you want answers to any of those questions, you must understand this principle. Because when you evaluate whether or not at your core belief, your value is ascribed to you or you must earn it, until you figure that out, your attitudes towards life will never change. An ascribed value changes your experience in your life and your attitude towards life. Why is that? Well, okay. It's not too hard to understand when you really think about it at a more deeper level. For instance, the number one reason why people don't do things in their life, the reason why people don't take a risk, why they don't improve themselves, why they don't adopt better habits, why they don't change their eating habits, why they keep repeating the same problems in their relationships over and over again, and they never have any improvement in their relationships, they have no, never have any improvement in their own sense of who they are or any peace about their life. The number one thing that stops all of that from ever happening, you know what it is? Fear of failure. This has been researched over and over again, and the biggest thing that hinders us is fear, right? And fear is what cuts to the very core of what you believe about your value. And so when you resolve the issue of where your value comes from, 
That's how you conquer fear. If you believe that your value is derived from yourself, from your own effort, then every mistake you've ever made, every failure in your life is a defining moment in who you are and your value. So so if you had a job and you didn't do very good and you got fired, then guess what? That's your value. You, You are a fired, no good employee forever. If, if at one time you told a lie or you told a mistruth to, to get out of a pickle, and guess what? From that moment on, your value is the fact that you're a liar. If, if your marriage failed, then guess what? You are a failure at the most important relationships of your life. If your, if your kids make a mistake or your kids do something that you don't approve of, it doesn't matter. It's your fault because you failed as a parent. You're a, you're a parental failure. You see, when my value is derived from myself and my effort, then every mistake I make is what? It's an indictment of my value. But if value is ascribed... If it's given, it becomes not a definitive statement of my nature or who I am. It becomes an opportunity to grow. It's not a statement of my value. So when you make a mistake, you don't have to live in fear and shock and anxiety and depression. Oh, I'm not perfect. I don't, I, I, you don't have all this anxiety around it. What you do is you go, well, that didn't work out as I'd hoped. And so now is an opportunity for me to grow. And this is how you go from chaos to peace in your life. From inner chaos to inner peace. From inner negative self-talk and perceptions about you to inner fulfillment and peace. Inner uh, anxiety and manipulation or control to inner peace. You see, when you get this figured out that my value is ascribed to me by God and God alone, I I could be a lost sheep. It doesn't matter. God is the one who's chosen to bestow value on me. That's how I live at peace with myself and with my life and with all the most important people around me. On a side note, did you know that prior to 17... 76, there were zero democracies that represented republics in the world. Today, over half of the nations across the globe are representative democracies, right? Democratic governments. In essence, America led the way. And do you know in the preamble of of the Declaration of Independence and the founding of our nation, The entire Declaration of Independence is based on a single principle. And you know what that principle is? It is that your value as a human being is ascribed to you by God. And that word that they use to say that is endowed by their creator with unalienable rights. No matter what you do, what you say, who you think you are, how much power control you have, you can never take that right away from those people because they've been given to them by God. This 
principle is critical to understand to your life. And this, where was it found? It's found in a story Jesus told 2,000 years ago about a sheep. If you pull it out of a ditch, it turns around and runs right back into it. Gets stuck in a, in a tire swing, and it, it has no concept that this isn't working. I need to back up, right? The lost sheep. Because God ascribes value. Which leads to the second principle, which I think is really important too, is this. Is that when people go their own way. And, and when we, last week, when we talked to, uh, dug into the parable of the prodigal son, we said what was so interesting about it is that this son insulted the father, took his inheritance, and he went his own way, and the father allowed him to do it. And so that really answers a lot of questions about why do bad things happen in this world? Why are people evil? Why, are they, why isn't God up there, you know, doing everything? Well, that time comes when he returns. But right now, what, he's like that father who says, okay, if you're going to go your own way, go your own way. And what's interesting is when people go their own way, Jesus views them as what? Lesser value? No. When they go their own way, does he view them as, I'm going to totally reject them and have nothing to do with them because they had their shot and they, they missed it and that's it? You get one bite of the apple? No. When people go their own way, Jesus views them as lost. Now, we must take judgment and hell seriously. Do you know who talked about hell and judgment more than anybody else in the New Testament or Old Testament? Jesus. He talked about it all the time. So he obviously took it pretty seriously. But what's interesting is when he talked about it, I don't think he talked about it with glee or a superiority, which he could have, being God and all. He didn't do that. What he did is it's, it's almost like he, he talked about it with a sorrow, Right? Because he doesn't see people who have walked away from him, right? He see uh, in a bad way, but as lost. And when they turn and come back to him, he throws a party. Today, I was just thinking about uh, how you know when you think about people in America today, how that apply, this principle applies to us is 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 I think men today in our society are incredibly lost. I think what our society is telling men and messaging men and, and trying to do to men is more about manipulation and control than actually showing men how to discover who and what they were created to be in order to discover their true authentic self and walk in the fullness of not only joy but peace about their lives. Why is that? And why is this happening? Well, you remember the story of Pinocchio? Remember that? Geppetto, he doesn't have a son. He so wants one. And so he carves a, a puppet, right? A marionette string puppet out of wood. And somehow, you know, the fairy does or the pixie or somebody shows up, Jiminy Cricket, and says, ah, oh, now there's a boy. And so Pinocchio's goal in life is to do what? Become a real boy, right? He wants to become real. And so he goes through all these adventures. And the end of the story is he eventually becomes real. Now, when you first read it, there's all this surface level stuff. And one of them is uh, issues is, Pleasure Island. 
you remember that part of the story where a Pied Piper comes along and the boys, he said, come with us where we just play and we have fun and your every desire is fulfilled. And so they march off with candy and suckers and they go to this island and they're on the carousels and this fun stuff at the circus and they're playing and stuff. But the longer they're at Pleasure Island, they start to turn into something else. And what do they turn in? Do they turn into puffer fish? No, they don't turn into butterflies. Do they turn into sheep? No. Do they turn into goats? No, they turn into donkeys. Now, why is that? Well, because when these fables were told on the farm in these rural areas, the donkey did all the hard labor. That's all the donkey was, was the carry the heavy load and do the labor. When you start to read that story and dig a little deeper, the message for men is overwhelming. And that is, is that your world has played the Pied Piper in your life to entice your pleasures, your sexual pleasures, your, your winning pleasures, your material or money pleasures, these types of things, that these pleasures have become so important. But the problem is, is the more you listen and the more you succumb to them, the more you lose your authentic masculinity. You lose your identity of what a real man is called to be and become and you become a donkey and all you're good for in society is the hard labor keep your mouth shut and carry the load that's what our society is doing to men does Jesus look at men and say, man, you men, you need to step up, man, man. I'm so disappointed in you, men. Man, men, if you don't get your stuff together, the whole society's going to collapse. Man, come on, man. I'm Jesus. Like, I'm the example. I walk on water. Why aren't you walking on the water? Does Jesus have a Brooklyn accent? I don't know. <laughs> is that, is that, no, Jesus doesn't look at men that way. Jesus sees men as what? Lost. Lost coin, lost things of incredible value that need to be found. Guys today have been immobilized by Pleasure Island. And even though God values them and wants them to be found, guess what? The only way that men, women, children, grandparents, teenagers experience the value ascribed to them by God, live in the value ascribed to them by God is through turning to God. And that's called repentance. Guess what he said? He says, after the lost sheep, it says, God is more happy about one sinner who repents, turns back to God, than 99 who don't think they need it. He says, there's more celebrating with the angels around God after the lost coin when one sinner returns to God in repentance. And then at the end of the prodigal son, what did they do when the prodigal son turned back to his father? They had a party, a celebration of joy. You know what's so interesting about the prodigal son is this, is the prodigal son was in a foreign land living lost do you think the attitude of his father had changed towards him while he was living there? I don't think so because as soon as that son turned and came back, what did the father do? Did he go up on the porch and tap his finger and light his cigar and go, well, it's about time he came to his senses. Are you ready to pay your dues and get back into my good graces? No, he saw his son off. And 
you know a person's true sense of how they feel about somebody is in that moment, how they react and how that father react. That, that love and that compassion uh, for his son just overwhelmed him. He grabs up his skirts and he jogs, runs to him, and then he embraces him and kisses him, right? The attitude of the father towards his son never changed, even though the son never knew it. He was living lost. And what repentance does is it, when we turn back to God, that's when what God has done, his grace and mercy, because it's unmerited what he's done for us, guess what? That's when we experience it ourselves, in our heart. That is when the greatest value happens in your life, to be loved by God and to walk in it. And to not listen to what you're telling yourself, but you listen to what God is saying about you. That's what repentance does. When you turn to God. So that's the challenge in life. And that's what this, these parables, I think, teach us. Is that we need to learn to live and walk in the value that Jesus has ascribed to us, to you, and to me. We can reject it, we can ignore it, we can neglect it. But I'll tell you what, being lost is its own hell and it always results in being in hell. So we can turn to God, encourage our friends and our family, people to turn to God so that they can embrace who they are, and discover their value in the kingdom of God. We need to uh, put it front and center of our lives so that it oozes out uh, amongst us. Because in the end, my friends, it's always about a party, right? Being found and walking in the fullness of the value that God ascribes to us is joyful. It's joyful to God. It is joyful to the angels. And it is joyful to the people of God. When things that were lost are found, we celebrate in joy. And if that's the case, then why would we never boldly invite those who are lost to turn back to God? Let's stand for closing prayer. Lord Jesus, there's a party, we're going, and we want more to come. Amen.